guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Steve Levin, who is the Managing Director of Elements and the founder of ASI Material. Steve Levin is an angel investor, advisor, startup executive. He's founded and developed successful businesses across a broad spectrum of products, which includes advanced materials and also services and technologies. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So we had your uh, partner in crime, Adam, on the show. Explain your uh, relationship with Adam. My relationship with Adam, we met someone that, was, that worked for me a number of years ago, about 2007, yeah. recommended that I talk to Adam. I was just finishing up another startup that I was working on, a series of startups, and looking for the next thing while I was wrapping the one up. And they said, you, got, you really should talk to Adam. He's working sort of in a different field than you're in, but you guys sort of think the same way. And I thought that would be dangerous, but I, I, <laughs> I ventured forward anyway and, and uh, talked to him. And it really was interesting because my background was sort of high-tech systems, electronics, marketing services, sort of a lot, very, very technology-focused and services-focused. His background was in the chemical business. But we went about solving pr- really tough problems the same way. Hmm. And really had the very same approaches. And when I started to describe Adam, what about what agile software development was and things like that and how we go about even developing new software and services and things like that. It was like the, the lights went on and it was it was like, wow, we've really been doing things the same way. And so we thought we would try to combine our skills, which covered a very large swath of most industries and venture off and try to develop uh, some new businesses and some new services. That sounds very cool. So describe this process that, that you share. Well, I mean, the process is pretty straightforward, but it essentially, I'll give you a couple of principles. Yep. One of the principles is that, that the amount of money that we spend is inversely proportional to the risk. Hmm. So the second thing is that Projects don't have sort of a begin and end date per se. What happens, as you probably see in large companies a lot of times, is where here's the start, here's all the steps in between, and here's what the end result is. Mm. And I've got that, and I've got project managers and PERT and Gantt charts and all kinds of schedules. But the fact is, if something radically different or new, things don't really happen that way. And if they do, you're a genius. Because you've been able to figure it out ahead of time. Well, I'm not a genius. And so I think people are more attuned to now that you really have to iterate your way through it. And and what that really requires is that you that you remain sort of objective about everything, that the way you approach it is that things take turns, they take little tangents, you have to pivot, you have to do things a little bit differently, and you have to kill ideas along the way. I mean, that's a re- at a really high level. But so what we try to do is in the really early stage, so let's say we've got an idea, we think it's really great, works out well. We can also digress later into talking about 
how we come up with ideas, how, how, yeah. how to best do that. But let's say you have an idea. And so what we try to look for are what are the things that have to be true for this thing to be successful, for this to be a reality. And what we really try to do is to try to find ways to accomplish those two or three sort of pivotal kinds of things or features or attributes or capabilities. And if any one of those things turns out that it's not really possible to do, then we kill the whole thing. Mm -hmm. There's no sense in looking at a very wide spectrum of everything you want to do and talk to customers and do lots and lots of things and lots of activities exploring how do I develop this widget when all you really have to do is look at two or three things, right? Mm-hmm. And that's different for incremental kinds of things where I'm the quote-unquote new and improved. But this is coming up with sort of brand new to the world kinds of products and services or capabilities. There's always just a few things that can get in your way of actually making it come true. And, and that's usually what we focus on on a very small scale with really limited dollars as are possible. I would say the other thing we do really early on is we have a perpetual business model because anything that we do has to make sense from a business perspective. And so that's another thing that has to be true, that ultimately this has to have some economic viability to it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just that I can do this faster, I can do this better or cheaper. It's, is there a way that I can make money doing this? And so we approach innovation in developing these things a little bit differently. But I mean, and the other thing I'd say that was probably crucial where, where Adam and I agreed is how do we stack the deck? How do we bring in the right people at the right time mm-hmm. to really make sure that we can accelerate this thing and, and to get, get the job done? And that's just, and so what that means is probably bringing in people from far afield. If I'm developing some new marketing capabilities to take advantage of word of mouth marketing, I might bring in somebody from that's modeled wildfires for the Department of Natural Resources, <laughs> or I might bring in people that are social scientists or other people, but different people that try to solve the same sort of problem, but in adjacent or lateral field. Mm. And so how do I bring those right people in? And so we have this perpetual in and out of a project early on to solve the toughest problems. And we don't load the project down with lots of people that, that want to need and need to be involved and need to be communicated with. We just bring in the right people at the right time to solve these things. Very nice. So at the real early stages, I would say those are the, the sort of the high level, high level principles of what we're trying to do. And the mantra that we try to use is that we want to create ideas that ship mm-hmm. as opposed to just creating stuff in a vacuum. It has to be in context with a a product, a market, and, a, and especially, especially a customer. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Now, you talked about coming up with ideas earlier. And how does that relate to sort of how does it sort of phase into what you're just talking about? Coming up with the ideas, you have your what needs to be true, which is sort of a non-judgmental process until you get to the technical feasibility aspect. How do you, how do you come up with these ideas? Well, first of all, You have to realize that a lot of the things that people are trying to do in different fields and industries or sectors have probably been solved in some way in some other field, Mm. in a more abstract way, but they've been solved. So to give you an example, we were, and I'm going to sort of 
take the names out of the picture of the companies to, to sort of protect the innocent, if you will. <laughs> but we were, we were working with one organization that had developed an incredible ocular adhesive. And they were interested in getting funding and basically licensing revenue from that. It's probably about a I'm guessing about 15 to 17 years out in, you know, until the product got to market. So we you know, originally started with handling their requirements specifically and putting together a team of ophthalmologists and investors, and we were going to move this thing forward. And then you know, we said, well, this is going to probably take 30 or $35 million over 10 years at least, and then we might have a product for sale. So in our case, we have a lot of experience in everything from aerospace to packaging, to manufacturing, to food services, to consumer packaged goods. And so I think it's our, our experience across lots and lots of industries and not being focused on one mm-hmm. that, that really helps us generate the ideas in the first place. So in the case of this biologically compatible adhesive, and this project that that probably was at minimum going to take maybe $30, $30 million to get out to the market. So, well, is there a way for us to find a more near-term, less regulated market where we could actually start using this stuff? And actually, in that case, what we came up with is that, well, there's another problem that people want to solve, and that's in the snack food business mm. with adhere- keeping spices adhered to snacks. Mm-hmm. There's tens of millions of dollars a year that are lost by by any company in that business by the spices falling away, either in manufacturing or in the bag or box or you know whatever the end container is. So it turns out this was a this was a great adhesive to get snacks to adhere to their spices without using water, which is like the enemy of snack foods, but that's mm-hmm. what they were using. Right, so that was that's an example of something that's been solved in one area, and we found a solution in another area, and it was a great a great adjacency. And there were others in that in that business too. Again, something had to do with wound closure and healing and, and bandages and stuff like that. But there were a lot of other areas. So what we try to do really early on, and what these are the one of the what must be true. It's not the ultimate market you're going after, but how quickly can I get some product out into market? It may not even be the product that I'm ultimately going to sell. But in the meantime, I can scale up. I can provide funding for whatever activities we need to get to the bigger market. I get more expertise. I can do my iterations in my business and my formulations and software or whatever it is that I have to do. And by the time I'm hitting the big markets, I've taken on a less a lot less external capital, and I have a lot more expertise. And I've got a, a team in place to scale the business, right? Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. You so mentioned- I think the, the key yeah. thing there was really having exposure to how problems have been solved in other industries that may have nothing to do with the one that you're looking at. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, can you comment on the, the buildings material industry at a high level? Yeah, I would say that that you know, the ones that we've focused on the most, I mean, obviously, with the building construction business, some of the things that in, in terms of materials that we've been focusing on are things like things that offer insulation or soundproofing, antimicrobial surfaces. We've been, we've been looking at things that have to do with 
managing heating and cooling in buildings on a more microscopic basis, meaning creating smaller cells that are heated or cooled in buildings based on needs and ambient temperature and external temperatures. In terms of materials themselves, I couldn't comment more than that without giving away some of the projects that we're working on. <laughs> but, uh, but I will say, I mean, one of the places that we've been focusing on, as we've, you and I've talked about before, is any kind of material advances or automation advances have to deal with the problem of, of a shortage of quality labor in the building and construction business, because that's, that's, that has been the source of everything. It's in obviously the last year or so materials costs have gone up significantly. And I'm not even sure why, because I don't see a great correlation between or a one-to-one correlation between raw material sources and the cost of building and construction supplies or, or equipment. So but at some point, that becomes a factor, too. But mostly, the work that we've done had to do with either cutting costs or decreasing the need for skilled labor or increasing safety, things like that. So the you know, technologies and things that you're probably eminently aware of is how do I use monitoring and sensors to help me collect information about different sites and material performance and workflow and safety and stuff like that. I mean, how can I use computing to help model what, what's going to happen with buildings, how they're going to perform, where errors might, how can I predict everything along those lines, predictive analytics, the stuff with autonomous equipment, but what is, is really important. But what we've focused on is more modular construction, is how do I, everything from supply chain to logistics to labor, things like that, how do I replace people with cranes, to put it crudely? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I bring in big sections and sort of put them together as opposed to having to build everything on site? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned licensing as, you know, as one of your sort of commercializations or how to make money from this venture kind of approach. I feel like licensing is mishandled quite a bit in terms of developing opportunities because I think it has to be something to be introduced early on because to understand how much revenue can you can extract from licensing model. Is that sort of your experience or is that how do you sort of put licensing as, as part of your sort of package of sort of commercialization? So yeah, in this case, you're talking about you're a company or an entity that has some technology and yeah. Ways to go about licensing that? Sort of, sort of. I mean, let's say you're building up an opportunity, right? Because you you start small and you're building it up. I feel like people sort of try to use licensing as a fallback program. Like they try to go to the market themselves. Maybe they don't have the internal capabilities, but then try to fall back on licensing. But the licensing model doesn't generate a big enough ROI. Like uh, I feel like licensing needs to be planned out ahead of time to sort of make good money from that. Is that your experience? Yeah, and I would, I would say that it depends on what stage you are when, where you're starting from. Mm-hmm. If I'm a large company and I'm getting into a new market, I've developed some new capabilities, some new tech, that's one thing. If I'm a startup, it's a totally different proposition. And so taking the example of a startup, I think where licensing becomes really important is two things is one, am I, am I in a business that requires a huge amount of capital to scale, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm in the software business, scaling is a wonderful thing. 
<laughs> because I can t- I can work with people like Amazon, Microsoft, Google. I can start out for zero cost to provide my services and scale linearly with the services that I'm offering and charging for. Mm-hmm. Really simple. If I have something, for example, where I'm in the business of starting a distribution center to deliver groceries on a more localized basis. Well, I need distribution centers. Grocery distribution centers run anywhere from 50 to $200 million each, depending on if you're a Kroger or an Amazon. Mm-hmm. So that's a different kind of problem. If I'm, in a, if I'm in a business where I'm making chemicals or, or raw materials to spend 50 to 200 million or more on a plant, isn't, a, isn't it inconceivable? So as a startup, that's a pretty daunting thing. And so pulling this back to licensing, the question is, so let's, let's just take the example of the chemical business. Mm-hmm. If I'm coming up with a specialty chemical that solves some really difficult problems in industry, maybe what I really need to do is carve out where are the high value specialty kind of engineered products that I can make and be really attentive to customers' needs, right? Yeah. And the big hundred billion, hundred billion metric ton kind of business, <laughs> maybe I need to get early on a strategic partner, a strategic investor, right? A big chemical company or someone else to partner with. And they're going to take those big commodity markets on because that's where they make money. They only look at billion dollar opportunities. Maybe me with a startup, and, and this is sort of my bias too, and Adam's is that we're not there to build over 20 years, a billion dollar company, our objectives really sort of take us through from from inception all the way through, let's say, 50 to $100 million sort of liquidity event. So mm-hmm. what we're looking for is how can I get lower, deal with lower volume so I don't have to scale those factories and things like that? How do I have higher value applications? How can I stay more customized for each customer to meet their needs? as I'm developing my business, and I can make a lot of money that way and then leave the scaling to a licensing, a small licensing fee for a large chemical company to scale this out and build all the factories in Asia and elsewhere. Yeah. So that's, that's for a startup, for example. So you've got to keep that in mind, but it's not a bad idea to, to really think about what, how much capital you're going to need. If I'm a, a bigger business, so let's say a GM or General Electric or Procter and Gamble—it's a whole different, you know, set of issues on licensing. And typically, they don't think about licensing. Mm-hmm. They or a new product or a service coming out—it's just not—it's not worth it for them. Mm-hmm. At least in my, from my perception, for them to worry about licensing anything to any other industries. Mm-hmm. So now, where, where there are opportunities, and there's a lot of them, is where companies have had technology sort of sitting on the shelf for a long time or stuff that they've done for a long time. And there's, there's an amazing amount of value in the IP that they've developed over the years. And so what they do is they try to use brokerage services or third-party websites and put the tech out there. But they, what they really have to do is get a group of people together that are qualified to say, all right, for a given technology, where are some other places that wouldn't be looking for this? that could really use these capabilities. Mm. It's sort of the inverse of what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you do that, I think there are a lot of opportunities out there to capitalize on the intellectual property you have. But I don't think it would be related to with large companies to launching new products. Mm, yeah. So with, with this sort of group, you're talking about an outside group that go hunt around for these corporations that have these piles of innovations in, in a dungeon somewhere? Well, so it can work both ways, but typically where we would work at Elements is, is that we would go in and do an, a sort of an IP assessment. Yeah. And what we wouldn't do is we wouldn't comb through every minutiae detail of all the IP that you have. We're, we would be opportunists because at the end of the day, what we really want to do is for this huge volume of intellectual property and patents and know-how, how do we create value from that, yeah. right? And so what we're doing, is, it's sort of the same way that we approach the what must be true is in this case, what we're doing is saying, are there two or three like major things that really, based on all of our experience in 50 different industries and lots of companies and technologies and products and services, are there a few things in this portfolio that just immediately jump out at us and say, wow, this, if this was true, then these things really could be used as sort of like a bunch of uh, ocular adhesives. Wow, the snack food business could really use this stuff. Now, they're not normally going to look there, but, but the things really jump out at you, to tell you the truth. What most companies do out there is they, they hire expensive consultants to come in and comb through all the IP and come up with a really nice matrix of each piece of IP, where it might be used, what the potential is. And this, it's this very wide and very deep assessment. And the fact is that 90% of that is a waste of time. <laughs> and the fact is, if you really want to make money, what you do is you look for the things that are going to really jump out at you. And that's the thing. And, and then you can get started. And it doesn't take a lot of time, effort, and money to do that. Okay, well, some of the things that jump out, what sort of characteristics do they have? What sort of timelines or, or things that sort of, any similarities between them? Well, they solve big problems in other industries, right? So once I'll just go back to that example again. The snack food business loses a ton of money in spices, in losing spices. Well, you got to know that in the first place, right? Yep. But then when you see things that say, wow, I can get things that stick together. It's biologically compatible. It, all, it can cure instantly. Well, this is a sort of a cool thing. And now I can put two and two together. But you've, the first thing you have to do is know the landscape and know what the big challenges are, mm-hmm. not just in your industry. So if you're, I'll just mention again, if you're like a Procter & Gamble and you have some new super absorbent capability that you want to license, or even some that's been something I've been doing in diapers for 25 years and look for other opportunities, right, to license that technology, well, I think I think the really the key is there is to look at sort of the principles or the properties of what you're actually doing, sort of abstract those, and then look for uh, look in other industries where they're trying to solve similar problems. So in one industry like diapers, it has to do with super absorbency, right? Yeah. Well, maybe that's really important in sewage treatment. Mm. Maybe that's important in other industries. So what you do is you look for you look for sort of what other industries have similar kinds of property challenges or big challenges, and you try to mix and match those things. We're not perfect at it, but we're really fast 
and really efficient at finding those top two or three mm. and then going with those. Very cool. So is this something... Unfortunately, you know, Fortune 50 companies like these extensive multicolor, you know, <laughs> decks that are many pages and extremely exhaustive so everyone can say, wow, we did a thorough job. Did you develop any revenue out of this? No. You know, it's, it's, so it's, and people have done these kind of things time and time again to try to create sort of a portfolio with their IP when you really, you want to be more opportunistic. Yeah, very interesting. So you talked about these challenges. I mean, Steve, are you always looking around at different industries, sort of poking around just naturally? Or is this some more of a deliberate effort that you kind of go to conferences and talk to people or, or follow different things? How, how does that process look like? And not all of us are looking at different industries all trying, trying to figure out their problems. Well, sure. And, and once again, getting to the, the larger companies out there, they're, they're really good at being efficient, yeah. at be having repeatable, low-risk processes. You have to be very focused to be a successful large company. And that's sort of the antithesis, right, of, of the kind of sort of messy kind of stuff that we do and putting pieces together to come up with something that wasn't thought of in the first place. So I say that in the work that we do, we don't we purposely don't limit ourselves to any one, one type of business or one type of industry. Yeah. And that's where we think that we can, one, get the best experience for ourselves to do a better job. And secondly, for our clients also. So, and it's interesting. I mean, for us, what we're looking for are where the real sort of grand challenges or killer problems or things that haven't that no one thought was that anyone was able to accomplish. And we're sort of good at figuring out, is there a way to really do that? Mm. Okay. Well, everything you're doing is sounds very exciting. Was there, (laughs) was there a point where it sort of came together for you? Cause obviously from, from day one, this is hard to do because it takes a lot of different skills. Was there a point where you kind of, it all sort of came together where you were sort of delivering that value or that result in the marketplace? Um, as a business or for me individually? Either or. It could be business or where you kind of felt where you kind of developed your craft to a, a certain point where you were at a different level. You know, for me, I, I'd say that it stems from a couple of things personally. One, having lots of like disparate interests, mm-hmm. whether it's photography or woodworking or horticulture or you know, whatever your hobbies, have lots of hobbies. Yeah. So if you have experience in metalworking or woodworking or painting or or a great example would be cooking. I'll I'll tell you what, some of the best chemists are the best cooks. And it's not as precise as the, as the chemistry, organic chemistry works that they might be doing, but it, it, it really opens up your mind to sort of different ways to approach stuff. So I would say, you know, one is having a diverse number of hobbies or interests and not being so myopic and you're focused on, you know, remembering pie to the 780th place or things like that. <laughs> Those are all sort of cool. And maybe you'll get some hits on YouTube if you're a young kid and do that. I think that actually at my age, it would actually be more extraordinary if I could do that than at, <laughs> you know, 15. But so having diverse interests, really what we've found is that that's one of the sort of things that really helps you sort of relate different areas and different experiences to solving problems in one field or another. For me personally, it was also another thing is that after college, 
I went to work for a company in the aerospace industry, Square Univac, for example. Mm. And I very quickly got into a situation where the company had was doing really well, but they had a real problem in, in sales with two words the salespeople were using, and that was no problem. So when customers <laughs> would say, we want to be able to do this, no problem. And so, you know, now what? Okay, so so my job was to try to figure out how do we actually accomplish these things using a combination of systems, design, mathematics, programming, things like that. How do we take all of our resources and solve these problems? And these were problems, everything from working with NASA and JPL to monitoring the output of copper mines in Africa to flight simulators to onboard systems for 747s and 57s. So it was, for me personally, I got to work across lots and lots of different industries solving really tough problems. And that sort of opened up my, that really sort of opened up my mind and opened the doors for me. And you could say maybe you had a natural propensity to do that in the first place, but that was a really great exercise. And so the Sort of the, the lateral to that is that when you bring new people in at a young age in companies, they're used to have these great management training programs. In fact, the financial industry, they did this where you had this management training program where you bring key people, your best people in, and have them work at all different parts of the organization, mm. right? Or get experience doing things from startups to you know other kinds of things. So fostering bringing in people with really diverse backgrounds as opposed to the narrow HR formulaic approach to this is the ideal candidate mm-hmm. is probably the best way to go. And the more you can foster people getting having touch points that are outside of their immediate focus area, I'd say those are other things that you can probably do to, to get people to come up with new ideas. Mm, very nice. No, I like that diverse background and, and hobbies. I, I know I know a lot of people that, that have a lot of hobbies and they've uh, sort of don't, they haven't been able to sort of convert that into sort of a commercial uh, successes uh, as you, you have. Um, what sort of habits or routines sort of help keep that together? I know you talked about sort of diversity and, and being a sort of variable, but what sort of habits or routines kind of hold that together? I would say the habits are to constantly be looking across sort of a a wide horizon Mm -hmm. and don't get, spend a certain amount. So obviously some of the things that you do require incredible focus Mm -hmm. and obviously in in large amounts of time. But I think looking to spend a certain amount of time, whether that's 10%, 15, 20, 30, it depends on just in sort of exploring, looking for clues, looking at information, following the trail of, you know, where did this idea come from or what, what was your, you know, just even the way you approach digesting information and news and developments and things like that in the marketplace, don't keep it to, to one area. Don't turn on your little search bots on Google to look in a really, and be as efficient as possible because serendipity plays a great role in this, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so don't be so efficient and good at looking at solving this one thing or looking in these specific areas to keep your sort of knowledge and information up to date. Look at other fields. Don't don't just limit it to if you're in the business of 
I don't know, uh, you know, making fishing line, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's probably a lot of other industries that do some things even that are similar that, that whether it's in the, you know, the, the polymer business or in the sports industries or other kinds of things where other developments could come up and you're, you know, you're aware. Or even if you, what you could do is another example is just, okay, here's my big challenges in my business. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's my, here's my top three. Here's my top five. Mm-hmm. What other industries have similar kinds of top five challenges? Mm. Take out the specifics, take out my specific product or service or my customer. But so, for example, if I'm trying to solve problems with more immediate delivery of products to end customers and not through distributors, well, the biggest challenge is, and let's say I'm making widgets, well, the biggest challenges right now are in the grocery business, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got Walmart, Target, you've got Kroger, you've got Amazon, all competing for immediate delivery of groceries. And so in another business, there's probably a lot of lessons to be learned there because they're putting a lot of money and time. They're experimenting with a lot of things. There's a lot of stuff I can learn from that about how do I get, how do I, how can I be really responsive to customers and get them what they want as fast as possible? So even though I might be making microwave ovens or or shoes, is there a lesson that I can learn from people that have had similar problems going from the customer to the product in their hands and not just in the shoe business, for example, in this case? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned some of your hobbies earlier, but I was poking around social media and I saw a lot of musical references. Are you a big music guy? I think yeah. classical. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, for me, it's it's either performing or playing instruments. And yeah. so everything from more ancient kinds of instruments to guitar, flute, oh. most of the most woodwinds and things like that, a little piano and and so doing that, composing, experimenting all the way through just appreciation for music, frankly, around the world. Everything from Amer- you know, early American folk slash Negro music mm-hmm. and to to music from the British Isles and, and Cel- you know, Celtic music from uh, Scotland and Ireland to more modern conventions. So including the Beatles, of course, but but mm-hmm. so I just have had a really wide interest in lots of different kinds of music and sort of how music and styles and influences have come into this country from either the Middle East or the or England and that, or Scotland or Ireland into the U.S. and sort of how they've evolved from there. And so there's like some key people that I follow, like Rhiannon Giddens, who's a really brilliant historian and performer, and has really sort of tied a lot of this stuff together, talking about some of the early music in the U.S. and how it, where it came from, and how it evolved. Mm. So just interest in sort of music and sort of how music moves from one culture to another, the similarities, differences, as well as performing music. So very nice. So you, you perform? Not anymore outside <laughs> the house. <laughs> yeah, I, was... I used to. Oh, okay. That's, that's, very I important. used to. And mostly because I could play a lot of instruments, I would sort of, I started out by sort of filling in where someone didn't show up. <laughs> And then have to, at the last minute, learn everything and just and do a decent job, not oh. screw up too much. <laughs> well, 
Well, I, I'm terrible at instruments, so definitely I respect anyone that, that can play one instrument and especially someone that can do multiple. So I mean, maybe my attention's too short and and I wound up going from one to the other, thinking that I would reach perfection earlier with each one. <laughs> Very cool. Is there is there anything that uh, that I uh, I should have asked but didn't? I would say that looking that you're focusing on on building materials and things like that, I think you've asked the right questions. And especially with building materials, it's there's a it's so interesting because there's there's problems that have been solved outside of that industry, and it's interesting because. A lot of things that are done in building and construction, especially on the material side, have been done the same from before I was born. Mm-hmm. And there's so many opportunities out there, but I don't know how I, how I describe this without being sounding too jaded. <laughs> the problem that you have, to be quite candid about, it, is that you have the large companies in building construction. Now, I, I, you know, we don't even have to talk about building construction. We can let's talk about large corporations. Mm-hmm. Whether you're whether you make office buildings and manage them, or you build or you make you know soft drinks. And the problem right now is is that when you look at how these big companies have managed their supply chains, they are so efficient. They're so predictable, and where they're not predictable. I have incredible adaptive models to model sort of weaknesses in my supply chain or what happens if this happens or what do I do here? The problem with it all is they've, how do I put this not so subtly? Big companies have beat the crap out of their suppliers to cut costs, shave time, Mm -hmm. and do all those kind of great things so they can get better margins for their shareholders. Mm -hmm. And then they turn around and wonder why their suppliers aren't being more innovative. It's because they have no juice left. They have no time. They have no energy or money to really. So you have this cognitive dissonance between the big companies talking about innovation. They want their suppliers to step up. They want to be more innovative. And that's what the brain is saying. What the body is saying is that, no, no, no. You've got to really cut costs. You've got to do all these things. And there's a whole set of different things in actuality where the cognitive dissonance comes in between what the brain is saying and what the body's doing in this case. And so the big challenge you know, that I think everybody has is, is giving their suppliers some breathing room to ultimately do a better job and to step up. Because if I see one weakness is that the more these suppliers become more efficient and more time effective and things like that, the less they're able to do with coming up with innovations for their customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a perpetual. So now the big companies are trying to partner up with startups or do incubators and do other stuff. <laughs> and, you know, you've got some good supplier companies. You're going to have to give them some breathing room basically to, to retool, restaff, or do something to bring the right kind of people in to develop new products. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the, uh, that's one of the biggest challenges. If I'm, if I'm selling raw materials or assembled parts to a big company, whether I'm a tier one or tier two to a big General Motors or Ford or Toyota, or even a company like GE or Procter and Gamble, I don't I don't have time or money or energy to do any any real innovation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So all this, and especially in building and construction, the largest companies drive the market. 
And then you have a really sort of messy second tier in, in dealing with materials and things like that. So, you know, I would just say that I would say the, the best evidence I can give you in building construction or any industry is to really see if you can partner with your suppliers and figure out what is it going to take for them to step up to really address some, some needs that you've had, whether it's structural, environmental, sustainability, insulation, conductivity, what your safety, whatever those things are, bring them in and have and work with them to help solve those problems. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Steve, thank you so much for sharing. You have a wealth of information and uh, I definitely learned a lot. Thank you. Well, th- thanks for inviting me and uh, good luck with the podcast. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify. And I also want to thank the listeners specifically that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.